everyone. I know people are still getting let into the meeting, but we're gonna go ahead and get started. I'm Amanda Sherritt here at Whitaker Myers, and I just wanna thank you all for joining today's webinar with our friends from Vanek around moat-based investing. And thank you to all who submitted questions. If you do have a question during the webinar, please put them in the chat and we will have time for Q&A at the end. When considering the investment approaches at Whitaker Myers, we run passively managed strategies that mirror the indexes of the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, and the MSCI EFA to mirror the approach of Dave, that Dave Ramsey talked about on his show, growth, growth and income, aggressive growth and international. We also run strategies around what our chief investment officer, John Mark Young, calls smart beta. So smart beta means taking an index like an S&P 500 and improving it by putting repeatable cost-effective screens that allow the portfolio to be enhanced and improved over time for the client's benefit. In our minds, this blends the best of both worlds because many of these smart beta strategies are low cost while also allowing clients to generate alpha or excess returns because they're approaching the index from a smarter, hence smart beta perspective. The moat-based concept is a simple concept. Companies that have a sustainable competitive advantage over time should stand the test of time. And that is exactly what you see from the Morningstar Wide Moat Focus Index, which has now exceeded a 15-year track record. Additionally, Vanek further incorporates the deep research from research bench of Morningstar, which is driven by over 100 analysts globally to try and find companies trading at attractive valuations relative to their equity research team's forward-looking estimate of fair value. What we've noticed and appreciated the most about Moat's performance is that their performance has displayed excess returns during some of the more sizable market downturns, such as 2008 and more recently, 2022. The team joining us today will go much deeper into the moat strategy of investing, so let's meet those team members. Andrew Lane is the Director of Equity Research and Index Strategies at Morningstar. He has been at Morningstar for over 10 years. He has his MBA from the University of Wisconsin and a bachelor's degree in economics and history from Boston College. Brad Pope is also with us, and he is a resident of Nashville, Tennessee, just like our friends at Ramsey Solutions. And he is a regional vice president for Vanek. Prior to his time at Vanek, he worked for Eagle Asset Management in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is a mutual fund company and asset manager owned by Raymond James. Brad is a certified blockchain expert, so you can ask him all your Bitcoin questions. And he graduated with a bachelor's degree from the University of Florida. And finally, Cole S. Stryker is a director and ETF strategist at Vanek. He as well has been at Vanek for nearly 10 years, and while also spending time in the financial world with firms like UBS and Wolverine Trading. Cole is a certified blockchain expert as well and graduated with a bachelor's degree in finance from Trinity University. He also obtained his SEMA designation from the Yale School of Management. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for this live stream and this webinar so that we can live out our core value of having the heart of a teacher. Brad, I know we're going to get started with you, so you can go ahead and please take it away. Thanks, Amanda, and my apologies up in advance. Um, I was having some problems with, with my camera, but uh, the two gentlemen on screen are, are certainly the ones that, that are driving the show here, so uh, we'll have full access with screen share and the presentation. Um, but 
first just wanted to thank Whitaker Myers and, and John Mark for the partnership with VanEck and with Morningstar. Um, gotten to meet John Mark and his team on a number of occasions. We really appreciate uh, the support and business in our wide moat strategy. Uh, today, just wanted to um, walk you through the moat methodology, the philosophy for moat. Uh, our partnership with Morningstar, as, as Amanda mentioned, dates back to 2012 when the ETF launched. The index dates back to 07, so there is a very long track record for this strategy as well as the partnership we've had with them. Um, with that, I, I will hand it over to Andrew. I know he has some, some remarks that he'll share along with the deck. I'm happy to open it up and keep it fluid with, with questions as well. So if there's anything you would like us to address um, on screen, if you have any questions, please, please feel free to ask. Great, great. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Brad. Uh, and I, I appreciate the intro and I appreciate the opportunity to, to, uh, to join you all today. And uh, thanks a lot for, for your time. <clears throat> so, you know, as uh, Amanda mentioned and, and Brad mentioned, we're, we'll, we'll go into the weeds a bit more with a deep dive on um, the Morningstar Wide Moat Focus Index. And, you know, th this is an index that has a very, very long track record. So we uh, at Morningstar actually launched the index way back in February of 2007. Um, so quite a long track record, which is very helpful because it's allowed us to observe how it's operated in a broad variety of market environments over that time period. And then, of course, as Brad mentioned, it's been available as an ETF since April of 2012. <clears throat> but, um, you know, at the core of this strategy uh, really is the, the research of the Morningstar Equity Research Team. And so the Morningstar Equity Research Team, of, of which, of course, I'm a, a part of, uh, we have about 100 equity analysts around the globe. Uh, we cover about 1,600 stocks. And um, at the heart of it, we are sell-side equity research providers, right? So we have very small coverage lists. We only cover about 15 or 16 stocks a piece uh, on average. Uh, and really, it's, it's our job to, to try to know the, the, those companies as well as any other sell-side equity analysts around the globe. Uh, and ultimately, it's the fundamental research, uh, the forecasting, and uh, the, the vision about what, what the future may hold for these, these businesses that um, determines what the holdings are of this Morningstar Wide Moat Focus Index uh, at any given point in time, right? And so I'm, my goal here today is to peel back the layers of the onion into you know, what inspires uh, the research that we provide and, and how that actually translates into um, a list of holdings. You know, Amanda mentioned um, you know, a preference for, for passive uh, investing. Um, in certain situations, and and indeed, the wide moat focus index, it 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 is an index that is rules based in terms of how it's constructed, right? So there is no portfolio manager who's saying, "I like this stock, not that one. I want to be overweight this sector. I want to be underweight this sector. Let's move more towards growth this quarter." None of that. Um, at the end of the day, uh, wherever the index operates, from a size and style perspective, from a sector weighting perspective. It's just a reflection of on, on a stock by stock basis, which analysts, excuse me, which stocks do our analysts think are undervalued, right? So there's a bit of you know, subjective forward looking assessments that our analysts provide. And then those data points simply get used uh, quarterly in a quarterly rules based reconstitution process, uh, at, at which point there's no portfolio manager. Uh, there's no 
avenue for manual intervention, right? It, 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 I'd like to say it takes the best of our fundamental research at, at Morningstar um, and leverages that in a very disciplined, replicable manner over time. Um, so as we discuss this uh, index a bit more, I'm going to share a few slides here to to paint a better picture of of really what makes it tick. And um, and I'll start right here, which is um, a reflection of of really what scenario has produced the best performance um, when when we talk about the holding period for this index. And so this is what we would call the the batting average slide. It shows the percent of the time. That the Morningstar wide moat focus index has outperformed the broad uh, US equity market based on the length of an underlying holding period. So if we start on the on the far left, and, and I would also just note that this is going all the way back to uh, inception in February of 2007, so a very long time period and large sample sizes for each of these bars. Uh, but looking at the far left side of, of this slide, you can see that in the 202 months uh, that in which this strategy has existed, we've only outperformed uh, about half the time, right? So it's effectively a coin flip from month to month if this index has outperformed uh, the broader market, right? And so that's uh, nothing to get too excited about, right? Uh, you, you'd hope for better than, than a 50-50 odds. Uh, but then, of course, as you can see on the slide, as that holding period extends longer and longer and you get to one, three, five, and, and even 10-year holding periods, the batting average, the percent of the time it's outperformed the broad market rises dramatically, right? So even if we're looking, you know, just at five-year holding periods on a monthly rolling basis, 95% uh, of those periods, this uh, strategy has outperformed the broader market. And again, that's over a large sample size, 143 such periods. And when you get to 10-year holding periods on a monthly rolling basis, of which there have been 83, uh, the wide mode focus index has outperformed in, in, in every single one of those 10-year holding periods. Uh, and so if I were to take all this and, and provide a key takeaway, you know, it's really just that this is not, uh, we, we didn't build this to, um, uh, to be sort of a tactical trading instrument in a portfolio, right? We, we built this in hopes that we could deliver long-term outperformance versus the broader market. And at least looking historically, uh, that, that that's what the, the Morningstar Wide Mode Focus Index has provided, right? The longer the holding period, uh, the uh, the better the investor experience has been, and so we can, we can go a little deeper into uh, into performance here. And I think something that is really really unique about the Morningstar Wide Moat Focus Index is the texture of how it's outperformed the market over time, right? And so you know all, all too often we we see a a strategy with a great upside capture ratio, but maybe you know it it, it underperforms the downside or vice versa. Um, when you're looking at quarterly data, ever since live inception for this index, this is an index that's actually been able to do both. It's been able to outperform in a given quarter when the market's moved higher, and that's shown by an upside capture of about 109 over, again, a very large sample size. Uh, but it's also preserved capital when the market has moved lower, right? So the down capture is, is favorable at about 87. And again, I, that's a unique characteristic especially over such a long time period, right? We're, we're talking about almost a 17 year live track record here. Um, and so when you, when you look at the calendar year returns, you can see that, you know, very much in action. Uh, there have been three years where the S&P had a, a negative uh, single calendar year since this index went live. 
you can see 2008, this index held up much better. 2018, the S&P was down about 4.4%. Uh, the wide moat focus index held up better. And then more recently in 2022, S&P down over 18%, uh, this index down about 13, a little over 13. So in each of those, each of those three years provided that downside protection, uh, but maybe more impressive are the three years following those down years. Yeah, years of recovery, right? So starting back at 2008, the recovery year that, that followed in 2009, uh, the index rebounded uh, in a much, much more robust manner than the broad market outperforming soundly. In 2019, following the 2018 down year, a big up year for the S&P, 31.5%, and this index rebounded again by a larger degree. And then in 2023, just last year, again, a very strong year of outperformance following a year where, where it delivered um, downside protection, right? So certainly, uh, this is not an, an index that's going to outperform every quarter or every year, uh, but if we're over a lengthy period of time able to deliver a favorable upside capture, and combine that with a, a favorable downside capture, um, you know that, that that's that's uh, really the goal, and and that that means we're providing value um, for anyone with exposure to this index. So let me let me refocus again on on the Morningstar Equity Research Team because again we're, we're going to talk a little bit more now about how the index gets uh, built each quarter. Uh, and so, as I said, there are about 100 equity analysts uh, that work for Morningstar, and and this is around the globe. Um, so we we cover uh, actually, it's now over 1,500 companies, about 1,600. And uh, we use one singular methodology in terms of the research that we provide, right? So it doesn't matter, you know, what, what country uh, a business is in. It doesn't matter what industry it's in. Uh, we use one singular philosophy and one singular approach to, to fundamental research uh, across the board. And that's really important because when we use the singular methodology, and we we can apply it consistently across all these different companies. You know, we would hope that that would lead um, to more consistent results for an index like this downstream that ends up using all those data points. Uh, and so, really, you know, th this is an index that just uses two main data points from our equity research team. Um, the first is the economic moat rating uh, a company has, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment. And then the second is the price to fair value uh, at which it operates. So, you know, is this, is a given company attractively priced when you take into account the stock price or what the market is discounting uh, versus our fair value estimate, right? What, what, what we think uh, the company is actually worth. And so it's, it's uh, straightforward, right? You certainly hear about a lot of investment solutions out there that look for great companies at the right price. I suppose that's exactly what we're trying to do, uh, but it's very difficult especially in the the large cap us equity space it's very difficult to outperform the market consistently um and yet uh, i think you know we we've proven that that our methodology has been able to do that over time so let's spend a little more time talking about those two data points i mentioned the first uh, is the economic moat rating and this is very central to all of the research we provide on uh, equities at morningstar um it's it's a very critical rating uh, for a couple of reasons. Not only does it determine eligibility for an index like the wide moat focus index that we're talking about today, which certainly is important, but it also impacts how we forecast cash flows for a given company, right? The, the wider the moat, the stronger the competitive advantage, the more durable the competitive advantage, um, you know, cash flows should remain higher for longer relative to a company that perhaps isn't endowed with that same 
uh, degree of competitive advantage, right? Uh, and so the moat rating, uh, it doesn't just get used as a screening element to separate great businesses from not so great businesses. Uh, it, it actually impacts how we, we the decisions we make in forecasting cash flows at well, as well. So it impacts our fair value estimate. Uh, so we have uh, three options in terms of the moat rating we can assign to every company that we cover. A company could have no moat, no competitive advantage. Um, it can have a narrow economic moat, which would mean we do see a competitive advantage that will last into the future. Uh, but we feel that it's more likely than not just going to last about 10 years um, rather than 20. Uh, 20 is the criterion needed for a wide moat rating. So if we assign a wide economic moat rating to a company, it means it has a very, very strong business model. And it has a competitive advantage we think is more likely than not going to last 20 years into the future. Now, I'll pause there for a moment and acknowledge that 20 years is an incredibly long time uh, when forecasting, right? It can be difficult enough to forecast how a company might perform next year, let alone next quarter. And so when we're thinking 20 years into the future about whether or not a competitive advantage will last, it, that's a very long time and it requires a great deal of conviction about the underlying quality of a business model. And so it, it truly is a rating that's reserved for the, the cream of the crop in terms of business quality um, and just how durable uh, their competitive advantages will prove to be. The other thing I would just mention about that very long 20 year time period is that um, not all sectors or industries are created equal in terms of how many wide moat companies uh, they might have, right? So if you think about a commodity-oriented sector, um, uh, like the basic materials sector, right? Perhaps oil and gas companies. Well, they of course extract and, and sell a commodity, which of course, by definition, um, they have no pricing power, right? They they sell it at the price the market dictates. So there are very very few uh, ways or avenues for a price taker to earn a long-lasting competitive advantage. In the resources space, uh, cost advantage is typically the only way to do that, um, right? If you have to sell it at the same price, who can extract it at the lowest price? <clears throat> but even then, maintaining a cost advantage for 20 years amid constant technological change and, and onslaught of, of new and existing competition can prove quite difficult. <clears throat> so you just don't see very often uh, wide moat ratings in some of these more commodity-oriented sectors or industries. On the other side of the coin, certain sectors and industries are more conducive to long-lasting competitive advantages. And here I might point to, just as an example, the pharmaceutical space, right? So a patent, of course, is a legal barrier to entry for about 20 years. Uh, so it actually dovetails pretty nicely with, with uh, the duration of you know, our, our methodology here. Uh, and for a, a large pharma company, you know, most of them have a number of, of patented drugs and we have very clear sight lines into, um, how long those patents are going to last, when they'll expire, you know, how much in the way of cash flows can be expected from those patents, um, how much those cash flows might fall when when the patent expires, <clears throat> and then we have um, a great deal of research on on new drugs in the pipeline, some of which in their own right will be patented someday. And so when you look at a, a portfolio of of patented drugs and you know new drugs in development that may be patented, it's much easier to have conviction about the durability of um, you know high cash flows high returns on capital for a 20-year period than it might be again in a more commodity oriented uh, sector or industry so 
you know, the, the industry or the sector in which the company operates matters a great, great deal, right? We're not taking like the top 20% of greatest businesses in each sector and giving them wide moats. No, it's um, wide moats are far more common in some sectors and industries than others. And so if the moat rating of none narrow or wide reflects how long into the future we think a competitive advantage might last, how do we go about identifying a competitive advantage in the first place? And to do that, we use our um, moat sources that you see shown on, on this slide. So we need to see at least one of these five moat sources present in a business model uh, in order to consider that it may have a narrow or wide economic moat. Yeah, if I were to phrase this differently, I would say that, you know, we would argue that any form of competitive advantage would fall into one of these five buckets. I won't walk through them all, but I'll, I'll just give a quick example here. We talked about patents from the, the pharmaceutical and biotech space. Well, those would be one form of intangible assets along with brand equity that provides pricing power. Um, so again, you know, we only need to see at least one of these moat sources in order to, to say that a company may have a, a, a moat. Um, and while we only need at least one of these moat sources, some companies do have more than one. A quick example here would be Amazon, right? We, we would argue Amazon has intangible assets in the enormous wealth of customer data that they've collected on any and all, all of us that have, <laughs> that have used the Amazon platform. Uh, they know exactly how long we spend on the platform, the typical price of a, a good we might buy, how frequently we're buying, and in turn, they know exactly uh, what to serve us in order to convert our activity into sales. So that's a, that data is a valuable and tangible asset for Amazon. Uh, then, of course, just thanks to their marketplace platform, there's a network effect there, right? The more vendors sell on Amazon, the more consumers it attracts, the more consumers are there, the more vendors it attracts. It's that virtuous cycle of that flywheel. And then lastly is cost advantage. Amazon has massive economies of scale relative to other e-commerce companies, but especially relative to, um, you know, brick and mortar retailers as well. Uh, so again, we only need to see one of these moat sources to think that a company could potentially have an economic moat. Uh, but if you have more than one, it's almost sort of like more legs to the stool that can be knocked out before your full economic moat um, were to disappear. And while this may seem very qualitative at this juncture in terms of considering why or why, uh, why not uh, there may be an economic moat for a business model, uh, we have numerous quantitative uh, milestones or markers we look for as well. And the key metric we look at is returns on invested capital uh, forecasted into the future, right? So it's not enough to just, you know, see evidence of a, a moat source and, and say that this company has a moat. You know, if there really is a, a, a durable competitive advantage there, well, that should be borne out in, in the financial performance of the company, right? We should see high returns on capital compared to the company's cost of capital. And we should believe that that's going to persist for, for some time into the future, right? So there's a qualitative element, uh, and then there certainly a, is a quantitative element uh, as well. I'm just going to skip forward a, a few slides here and uh, talk a little bit about um, the the different parts of the screen that come together to build this index each quarter. And so a question that we get a lot from clients is, well, what matters more in terms of performance, screening for wide moat companies or being selective about valuation, right? Because of course, screening for wide moat companies is only the first step in building this index. What we then do 
is we take all the US wide moat companies that we cover each quarter and we rank them by the degree to which they're trading below our fair value estimate or what we, what we think they're worth, right? So we're screening for wide moat companies and then including only those that are the most undervalued. And so when that question comes up, what matters more, the wide moat rating or the valuation screen, um, this slide sort of helps answer that question. And, and really the answer is just, it's a combination of, of both of those things. So on the far left, you have uh, a broad market index. This is the parent index uh, for the Morningstar wide moat focus index, uh, the Morningstar US market index. It's, you know, S&P like in its return profile. And you can see that since 2007 on an annualized basis, uh, the market's returned about 9.4%. Uh, then the second blue bar from the left is an index along the way that screens just for the U.S. wide moat companies that we've covered along the way. So in other words, focusing just on wide moat business, and this is on a, on a market cap weighted basis, has augmented performance over time. Uh, interestingly, then the third blue bar from the left is the exact same companies along the way as the second blue bar at the exact same times, but the difference is that it's an equal weighted basket of those same companies as opposed to the second bar being cap weighted. So again, um, having an equal weighted strategy was, uh, was very helpful, uh, at least it has been historically. Uh, that certainly wasn't the case in 2023, which we'll talk more about later, but um, historically using an equal weighted methodology has, has augmented returns. And then the final bar, the rightmost bar, is the index itself. So it's an equal weighted basket of U.S. wide moat stocks, but only those that are the most undervalued that we cover. So in other words, we've simply added a valuation screen. And that has proven to be the most impactful part of the construction process, right? You can see it's added the most return relative to the prior step. Um, but long story short, I, I just think this is an interesting exhibit that stresses you know how we build this index each quarter and, and the role that each of those um, you know portfolio construction steps has played into the process uh, uh, let me pivot for a moment and give some specific company examples because i think that always that always brings um, the construction methodology to life a bit more and so i'll start with nvidia and i start with nvidia Really, more than anything, just because there's probably no stock we've been asked about more over the last couple of years than Nvidia. Um, certainly, it's it's been um, the subject of, you know, intense interest from financial media outlets and investors alike. Uh, and, and let me frame this first by just saying that uh, this is not uh, this slide is not a success story by any means. Um, it can be construed as such, perhaps, but. Um, uh, you know, we, we also left a lot on the table with NVIDIA, but I do think it's a good example of, of the discipline uh, that, that we use when building this portfolio. So this is a, a time series uh, going back to, to July of 2022, and then a, a year forward to, to mid-2023. And uh, you'll perhaps recall that leading up to what you see on this slide uh, in early 2022, Big tech was um, going through a very rough time, right? The first half of, of 2022, big tech companies, including NVIDIA, got absolutely hammered. And so the, the gray line is our fair value estimate. You can see for most of this one year period, it was flat at around $200 per share. I think slightly, um, perhaps slightly above $200 per share. <clears throat> and so we did not own any NVIDIA uh, as NVIDIA fell and fell until finally when it got to the September 
quarterly reconstitution for the wide moat focus index, you can see that the stock price in blue uh, was quite a bit below our fair value. Right, so we thought the stock had been overvalued for most of the year. Uh, it fell so much, suddenly it offered what we thought was an attractive valuation. So it goes into the index, right? It has a wide moat. It was one of the most, the 40 most undervalued options. So it goes into the index. Um, it proved to be favorable timing, right? The stock uh, sort of turned around, uh, rose a bit. And by the time we got to the March 2023 reconstitution, you can see that it was removed from the index. Right at that point, it was above our fair value. So, on one hand, yes, you know, this was a success story simply because what we're trying to do is be disciplined and hit singles and doubles, um, you know, and, and really just uh, have a replicable process where we're avoiding overvalued companies and taking advantage of, of opportunities for undervalued securities. So yeah, on one hand, that's what we did here, right? We we had a very nice return for NVIDIA, but on the other hand, we left a lot on the table, right? So if we continued this uh, chart, the stock would move even higher. Um, so nonetheless, we're, we're we're satisfied, right? We we avoided the, the the decline in early 2022, took advantage of the stock at an opportune time, and yes, perhaps we moved out early, uh, but we we got the return that we were looking for. Another interesting example is Bank of America. And so I'd start by saying that Bank of America has been wide moat rated as long as we've covered the stock. Uh, but because of the valuation screen, interestingly, it, it hadn't been held in this index since 2008 in the wake of the global financial crisis, right? So we've always loved the business model, but we just never thought that the stock was undervalued. So it was on the sidelines for a very, very long time. Um, finally, it found its way back into the index in March of 2020 which of course was the onset of the global pandemic. Um, you know, there was great concern about the impact that the pandemic would have on, on the banking system. And our, um, our analyst who, who covers this space, you know, he, he did a lot of stress tests uh, of the business models of the banks and their balance sheets. Um, you know, some of these stocks were trading at valuations that we hadn't seen since the financial crisis. And he felt, you know, yes, uh, these business models will be challenged for a bit of time. But when we look back five years, you know, I, I really think that our outlook for cash flows will be no different than it was before the pandemic. And so you can see his fair value fell a bit uh, during the pandemic, uh, but the stock was punished quite a bit more. Uh, it was um, worked into the index, recovered very nicely, and then um, was removed once it was overvalued. And, and as you can see, from you know mid 2021 uh, till mid 2023 then the stock uh, fell again and so again a good example of, of valuation discipline with the stock finally actually going back into the index after falling a lot in in uh, june of, of 2023 um, let me pause there and see if there are any questions i've raised so far um, before i i move on to, to some other content Yes, Andrew, we do have one um, specifically about valuations. So um, a question came in that today all the talk is around valuations with the markets having such a strong run and not seeing a ton of earnings growth happening, yet valuations look a little stretched. How does the moat companies or moat index compare in terms of valuation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. I have a, a actually, a, I think a very interesting slide that helps answer that question. Um, so let me just uh, pull it up here. 
but the long story short as I do that is that um, there have certainly been times where the market has been running hot for an extended period of time and it's proven difficult to find undervalued wide moat securities. And so that uh, was an issue in 2021, right after we'd had a very long extended period of, of strong market performance. Uh, as I'll share my screen right here. What we're showing here is the blue line is it takes all of the holdings of the wide moat focus index over time um, and adjusting their impact by their weighting in the portfolio. It shows the sort of aggregate discount to fair value that the whole index is trading at. Um, and so over the long run, this is a, a trailing 10 year chart. The index has on average traded at a 14% discount to fair value. And again, that fair value is coming from, from our equity analysts. Uh, sometimes it gets far cheaper than that. Late 2015, um, you know, the end of 2018, after a big pullback for the market, 2022 as the market pulled back. And other, other times, you know, as I said, when the market's been running hot for a while, like we saw in, you know, 2020 and 2021, we reached a point where the, the, the index, which is designed to be undervalued, was fair, even touched fair value or even slightly above fair value at a couple points there. Um, so this question has about valuation broadly has been coming up a lot because the wide mode index has, you know, has outperformed um, the broad market so soundly in 2022 and 2023 that there's concern, oh, is this the, the wrong time uh, to have exposure? And what this chart shows, and, and this is through the end of 2023, so relatively recently, is even after two years of, of sound outperformance, um, the valuation of the index was pretty much in line with the historical average, right? It was actually trading right around that same 10-year average of about a 14% uh, discount to fair value, right? Um, and so that's true for the index. And then when you think about the broad market in general, um, our research would suggest that, you know, it, it's about fairly valued, uh, may, maybe a, a, just a touch undervalued. And so that's forgetting about wide moat undervalued securities. That's just all the securities that we cover uh, in the US. Um, we've, we feel that it's it's roughly fairly valued at this juncture. But this chart that I'm sharing shows that, you know, when you when you screen for wide moat companies that are undervalued, we, we're, we still feel as though there's there's quite a bit of um, uh, attractiveness out there that that hopefully we'll we'll be able to take advantage of. Good, thank you. And Jake Buckwalter put one, he's actually one of our financial advisors, and he asked, is there a percentage you'd look for as far as undervalued? Uh, yeah, I, I, so the short answer is is no, there's no sort of absolute threshold that we're looking for. And I'm glad you asked the question because it, it allows me to, to be a little bit more specific about how we build this index. You know, at, at a high level, we're looking for undervalued securities, um, but what does that actually mean from a construction perspective? What that means is that we um, we we take all the all the stocks we cover. Again, that's about sixteen hundred globally. We first screen for this is a, a U.S. strategy, so we screen for U.S. companies. That gets us to about seven hundred companies we cover. Uh, the next step is we screen for wide moat firms from the basket of U.S. businesses. That gets us to about one hundred and fifty. And then to answer your question, the last step is we just simply rank all of the wide moat US companies by their discount to fair value. There's no absolute 
cutoff or threshold that we use. What we instead use is the 40 most undervalued. So it's a relative judgment. Um, and that's why at times, if the market's been running really hot for a few years in, you know, in a row, it can be hard to find uh, undervalued securities. And sometimes we've even added a stock that was fairly valued or even a touch overvalued simply because it ranked still in the top 40. Um, so at the end of the day, th there isn't a specific discount we look for to add a stock. It's just simply, you know, does a, does a company rank in the 40 most undervalued at the point of reconstitution? Um, and so that's why on that last slide that I showed, the, the full discount to fair value fluctuates uh, over time of the index. Now, ideally, each quarter when it gets reconstituted, pretty much by definition, you should see that uh, discount to fair value increase because we're refreshing the portfolio with the most undervalued stocks and we're kicking out stocks that have performed well and are now overvalued. Um, so that's that, that's what sort of keeps the, the portfolio undervalued for the most part over time is just always cycling in undervalued securities and, and cycling out those that are overvalued. Now, one other um, slide I, I wanted to be sure to share here um, is just where this index has historically operated in the style box. Um, and so on the left side, you can see in the dark blue dots is the, the Morningstar Wide Moat Focus Index. And again, this goes back to February of 2007 when the index went live. Uh, then of course, the, the, the more teal or aqua circles are the S&P 500 over time. A few interesting things here, one of which is that when you look at end of year, uh, and the orange circle, the, the S&P is actually becoming quite growth oriented and that has a lot to do with, you know, growth oriented big tech stocks just growing and growing and becoming a larger concentration of the S&P 500. But nonetheless, um, more importantly, focusing on the dark blue dots, it's very safe to call this a large blend index, right? It, it bounces around in that large blend style box and, and very rarely moves moves outside of that style box. Um, when it does, it's it's typically not there for long. Um, but sometimes, as you can see, it has a growth orientation and other times it, it has more of a, a value orientation. And that can actually change pretty rapidly. A and we saw that very recently. So in 2022, as tech stocks and more cyclical stocks were beaten up by the market, uh, all of a sudden, much like the NVIDIA example, we, we saw a lot of opportunity in some of those more growthy cyclical stocks. And so we ended 2022 uh, over here on the border between core and, and growth. Um, then what happened in 2023 was those, you know, the technology sector and more cyclical oriented stocks rebounded very nicely relative to defensive value stocks. And they performed so well so quickly in the first half of 2023 that they started to get uh, overvalued, and and uh, we we had to you know cycle them back out uh, for what ended up being a baskets of sort of more defensive oriented stocks. And so uh, from the beginning of 2023 till the end of 2023, we we pretty much moved all the way across that blend style box, and this is where we are today, which is. Um, you know, a, a, a bit of a, uh, a bias towards uh, towards value. And so it helps to be able to allow that index to migrate wherever we see opportunities, right? We are not constrained to a style box. You know, we don't eliminate any stocks based on their uh, size or style. 
it's just focusing on wide moat companies um, leads us sort of towards that large cap band. You, you just don't find that many small and uh, small cap, you know, wide moat stocks, and you, you do see some mid cap ones, but not, you know, large cap is is what really ends ends up, you know, being a representation of the index when you focus on wide moat securities, and that's that valuation screen that allows us to bounce around, you know, in that in that large cap band, sometimes with that value bias, sometimes with that um, that growth bias. So let me uh, switch gears for just a moment. Um, I'm gonna flip over to a different deck. And there's one last element of the wide moat focus index more recently that I, that I think is quite interesting and I wanted to be sure to touch on. Um, and that is right here. <clears throat> So, you know, I think one of the biggest stories across the investing landscape in 2023 was um, just the incredible, incredible performance of of what I guess we're all now calling the Magnificent Seven, right? We used to used to go with the FANG acronym, but but now we're we're on to uh, the Magnificent Seven. Anyways, um, all seven of those stocks outperformed the broader market by a pretty wide margin, right? And there were two in particular that had, um, you know, enormous outperformance, which were NVIDIA and Meta Platforms in 2023. Uh, I, you know, I like to remind everyone that Meta Platforms had a fantastic year because it performed almost as well as NVIDIA, uh, but, you know, you probably heard about it in financial media um, a fraction of the time that, that we heard about NVIDIA. N nonetheless, um, yeah, the, the the biggest story of 2023 might have been just the unbelievable success of of those seven stocks, and we have reached a point now where the Magnificent Seven account for nearly 30 percent of the weighting of the S&P 500. Right, so seven stocks of the S&P 500 accounting for almost 30 percent of its weight, and that has risen pretty dramatically uh, over time. When you when you look back five years, uh, it was a much much smaller proportion. And so what does that mean for the wide moat focus index? Well, it, it's a pretty pressing headwind. Uh, so as a reminder, the wide moat focus index uses an equal weighted methodology that, that we talked about earlier. That methodology that being equal weighted has helped a lot over time, uh, but you know, in 2023, it was a major headwind. So as you can see on the left side of, of this slide, in 2023, the Magnificent Seven had a, just shy of a 9% weighting in the wide mode focus index. Um, but in the S&P 500 and the Russell 1000, it was far, far higher, right? So we were substantially underweight, the seven stocks that were the, the darlings of the market last year. And you can see on the right, um, those seven stocks drove 58% of the re total return of the S&P 500, right? Seven stocks alone accounting for the majority of the total return of the S&P 500 is pretty astonishing. Uh, you know, just al almost the same story for the Russell 1000 if you expand to, to the Russell 1000 from the S&P. And they only accounted for t about 20, just over 25% of the total return of the wide moat focus index. And so that um, would seem to be a, a pretty uh, adverse exposure, right? And, and it, it, you know, it, it would have been, as you can see here, um, we're showing 2023 total return for the wide moat focus index, and then look, doing the same for the S&P 500 and Russell 1000, but looking at 
the cap weighted and then the equal weighted versions of those. And so not surprisingly, because uh, an equal weighting approach was adverse with the Magnificent 7 performing so well last year, you could see the equal weighted version of the S&P delivered a far, far lower return than the traditional cap weighted version. And the same for Russell 1000, right? Less than half the total return from the Russell 1000 equal weight. Um, yet, despite being equal weighted, the wide moat focus index outperformed all of the above, right? And so certainly uh, being substantially underweight, the Magnificent 7 hurt performance, uh, but fortunately stock selection was favorable enough otherwise um, that we we far more than than made up for that. And, and so that um, is something, you know, that, that that we were very proud of in, in 2023, a year that um, was pretty dire for for equal weighted strategies out there was a year that that uh, we performed um, very very well, and, and so you know again uh, I, I just want to be very clear we love uh, the business models of the magnificent seven uh, six of them have a wide moat the only one that is not eligible because it has a narrow moat is Tesla so we we love the business models um, we just you know being equal weighted, uh, there's no way we could even get to the market weighting of that basket of stocks if we owned all six of those companies. And of course, then what are the chances that all six will be undervalued at the same time, right? And so we don't relish being underweight that basket of stocks uh, in a year like last year. It, it certainly didn't help, um, but it, it, you know there are some years where it does help. And 2022 was one of those years, right? The, most of those stocks performed very poorly in 2022. And it was helpful to be to be underweight. So um, that positioning can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. It's just definitely something that I always want to make sure um, you know clients and, and interested parties are aware of because it, it can have a a substantial impact on performance from time to time, for better or or for worse. Now, I also wanted to uh, uh, before we we stop for Q and A here, I did want to briefly touch on you know I might call it the uh, uh, the sibling of the Morningstar Wide Moat Focus Index, and that is um, the U.S. Small and Mid-Cap Moat Focus Index. So this is an index we launched uh, a, a couple years back, and it really has the same DNA as the Morningstar Wide Moat Focus Index, but there are a, a few differences, right? So despite screening for companies with economic moats that are undervalued, just like just like the uh, traditional wide moat focus index does. Um, it's a small and mid cap version, so we're eliminating the large cap section of the market. And because there are fewer wide moat companies in um, the small and mid cap space relative to the large cap space, we expand it to include narrow moat companies as well, right? And and so um, uh, those are the really the key differences. It also has more more holdings, probably closer to, to 90 to 100 at any point in time versus the wide moat focus is usually close to about uh, you know, 50, say 45 to 50. Um, but anyways, this, this is an index um, for which there's been a great deal of client interest. Uh, as you can see on this slide, in 2023, it managed to outperform you know, the S&P mid cap 400 index, as well as the S&P small cap uh, 600 index. Um, and so this is an index that, um, that we're very excited about. And and we built it in a way that that would make it uh, appealing as a complement to the wide moat focus index, right? It operates in a very different part, uh, as you can see on this slide, uh, a different part of the style box than 
the wide moat focus index, which is on the left, right? The blue dots on the left, and whereas the small and mid cap version um, are the blue dots on the right. Now, I should note that despite being a small and mid cap strategy, you can see on the right side that it actually skews a little bit larger than even just the S&P 400 mid cap index. Um, so it certainly does have small cap and mid cap holdings, but it does skew um, a little bit larger. But nonetheless, the overlap with uh, the wide mode focus index is, is you know, relatively small, um, which again, um, for anyone interested in, in you know, moat investing does make, uh, does allow it to be a, a, a good complement um, to that uh, wide mode focus index. So perhaps that is enough for me. I think I touched on um, all the key uh, the key elements of of the wide mode focus index, how how it operates, what makes it tick. I wanted to, of course, introduce the small and mid cap version, um, but available for any uh, any questions that the group uh, might have. Thank you. Yeah, we do have a couple. So the you touched on 2022 a little bit, but this question is. What in your mind is the rationale for why this strategy like this does so well in stressed markets such as 2022 yeah. or 2008? Yeah, I think um, you know when, when when this question comes up, when you 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 screen for wide moat businesses, there these are the business models that tend to be the most resilient amid times of stress for the economy. Uh, the market or both, right? And, and so I think specifically um, with regard to the holdings of this index, they tend to prove to be safe havens more often than not when the market's moving lower. Um, you know, and, and even even the big tech companies, the Magnificent Seven, despite being more growth oriented and cyclical, as we've seen in recent years, um, you know, other than 2022, they, they, sometimes they, they, even they prove to be uh, safe havens despite being less, you know, defensive, so to speak. So that wide moat screen just sort of points you towards companies with more resilient business models that are more likely to, um, you know, sustain and, and keep delivering attractive cash flows uh, even when market sentiment weakens or the underlying econo economic conditions weaken. You know, and I guess uh, the other thing I would say that's really more specific to 2022 is that wide moat stocks relative to the market tend to hold up very well when interest rates rise, right? And so we saw that the last time the Fed tried to raise interest rates in 2018 and the market moved lower, um, wide moat stocks outperformed, um, and we saw that again. So these are, th these are companies that probably don't need the same degree of access to capital markets and debt markets to maintain growth or to just maintain profitability or cash flows, uh, and so they're probably less sensitive to higher interest rates than, you know, the, your your average company, uh, probably a, a narrow moat or or even an, uh, especially a no moat company. And so this time around in 2022, um, I think being a little bit more immune to to the negative impacts of of um, higher interest rates was important for this index, but then also being more immune to the impact of inflation, right? So the wider a company's moat. Um, the more able it typically is to pass on higher input costs to consumers, as opposed to having to digest them themselves and have margins decline, right? So whether that's a brand that people still want to pay for, despite economic, um, you know, the difficult economic conditions, or despite, you know, that being a patented drug, by and large, these are companies that are able to maintain pricing power and 
um, maintain margins when input costs rise. And, and so that was sort of a perfect storm in, in 2022, higher interest rates, you know, substantial growth uh, increases in inflation. And that set the stage for, I think, very strong relative performance for this index versus the market. Thank you. We have um, two more, unless others come in. What is the turnover rate of the index? Yeah, I don't know. Cole, do you know that figure offhand? I don't think I have the most, uh, the most uh, updated, version. updated version. Yeah, historically it's about 60, 60%. Yeah, and, and so yeah, admittedly, and so you know, know, this isn't... Yeah, this isn't this isn't a super this low isn't a turnover super strategy, low turnover strategy right? We, right? We, I don't know, Cole, maybe you could mute Cole, maybe you could uh, uh, feedback. Thanks. Yeah, um, this is a, a, you know, reasonably high turnover strategy because each quarter we're refreshing the portfolio, kicking out the, the fairly valued or overvalued securities and, and re replacing them with undervalued securities. Um, and so that's proven to be uh, helpful over time. And then, um, uh, but yes, uh, about I think about a sixty percent annual turnover figure historically. Thanks, Cole. I just saw John Mark's comments in the chat as well, but did want to mention that with that turnover, the ETF has never paid a capital gain in the life of the the history dating back to two thousand twelve. Uh, so there is a tax efficiency through the ETF wrapper. Yes, thank you. Okay, you touched on this a little bit, but maybe if you could just elaborate a little bit more because they're saying they saw um, on CNBC that equally weighted S&P 500 was negative until the strong run in the market of November and December 2023. So it, you did talk about, you know, how you think that you were able to do well, but what do you think played into that outperformance? Yeah, I think, um... The, the style drift that I talked about earlier was very helpful. So starting the year with um, a notable growth bias um, was, was very favorable. Um, and then, you know, having that having that sort of migrate over the course of the year as, as a lot of those, you know, more growth oriented cyclical spaces became fairly valued or, or overvalued was um, was very helpful. And, and then um, really it was just favorable stock selection. Right. So. To, to touch on that a bit more, you know, while this is a passive rules-based index, it does use forward-looking subjective research-based data points from the Morningstar Equity Research Team. And what that means is that uh, like any person who forecasts, like any group that that publishes their forecasts, we're, we're going to be right sometimes more often than we're wrong and, and vice versa. Um, and so, you know, certainly there have been years where we've underperformed and stock selection was poor. Now that's often been followed by favorable stock selection um, thereafter. Uh, but 2023 was simply a year where where stock selection was highly favorable, right? And and I'm I'm glad it was because it it, it helped us um, as I discussed. It helps uh, helped us uh, far more than offset the the big headwind from um, a group of seven specific stocks where stock selection. It was unfavorable because we, we simply couldn't own more, any more of them uh, and we're very underweight the basket. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, do you have anything else to share with us? I think that wraps up our questions. It looks like one more question did hit the chat 
about oh, okay thank you for catching that certain risks um cole i know we we addressed this question quite a bit not sure if you want to tackle that one yep so, sorry can you guys hear me we can yeah good okay yeah. Uh, and you're talking about risk associated with investing in the index itself the, the mode index the question is, what the are question, the risks associated the with risk investing, associated in the index? investing in the index? Well, so the ETF we're in, is actually tracking the index, so indexes are inherently uninvestable. Uh, so I just want to make sure that that's clear. Um, and the risk is ultimately going to be the, the tracking error. So if the methodology is incorrect, you're going to have some tracking error relative to the benchmark. So anyone who is very benchmark centric, that's always going to be a, a risk for moat because we are equally weighted and oftentimes we're going to look very different than the benchmark, but that differentiation has played off over time. So just looking at the current basket positioning, you know, objectively, you could say if we continue to see, you know, a, a low quality rally uh, continue for the rest of the year, moat wouldn't necessarily participate in that rally because we are underweight some of those stocks. However, um, if we do see some type of a pullback or, or a correction, or if fundamentals actually matter again in this market, then the expectation is that Moat should uh, continue to outperform. But I would think about Moat in the context of six-month intervals. So I know Andrew alluded to the fact that, yes, on a monthly basis, Moat's not always going to outperform, but over the long term, as we've seen from the batting average, uh, Moat, Moat has done a, a pretty good job. Thank you. Thank you guys Thank for joining us, guys all for of our clients our and prospective clients that are on the call, as well as Andrew, Cole, and Brad. Thank you for giving us this valuable information. And we do have a webinar every month, so look for our next webinar that's coming out in March. Um, that will be advertised in our newsletter as well. Thank you so much for joining, and we hope you have a great evening.